Welcome to Creating Your Happy Place, a podcast that explores how our spaces support or sabotage our happiness and then empowers you to do whatever it takes to get happy at home. I'm Rebecca West, host of Creating Your Happy Place and author of the book, Happy Starts at Home, and I am so glad you're here. Now, whenever we think about interior design, we're always thinking about how the needs of our home or how our home should serve our needs, but sometimes those needs change either on a permanent basis, like in our last episode, we talked to Shelly Rosenberg about how she's adapted her home to the needs of her Down syndrome child, or on a temporary basis, like we break a leg and we need some help getting into the shower. Today, we're gonna chat with someone who has been creating beautiful spaces for a very long time, but right in the middle of it all, he faced a life-changing accident that put him in physical recovery for five years. He had to learn how to read, write, speak, and walk all over again. When I heard his story, I wondered, like, how did the accident affect how he saw his spaces and his environment? What had to change in his space during his recovery to support him and the person who was taking care of him living in that same space as he learned to do everything all over again? And how or if all that changed how he designed spaces for himself and other people since recovery? So... Let me welcome to the show from Portland, Oregon, where he lives in a house with his husband of 31 years and their 10-year-old greyhound, president of Garrison Hollinger Interior Design, Garrison Hollinger. Welcome to the show. Hi, Rebecca. Wow, what an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really am excited to talk about this. I've been wanting to talk about this ever since we met. You and I met, what, a year ago at KBiz when we were both serving as judges at the industry show. And I just, I'm so excited about this conversation. So I want you to start by telling us about the accident, what you were doing with your career before it occurred, and the timeline of your recovery. Let's begin there. Great. Well, um, I was living in San Francisco. I was um, an early entry into retail with The Gap, so way back in the day. And um, so I was one of the first few dozen employees for Old Navy. And when we were building that brand, and I was living in San Francisco, developing technology. So my primary job was anything that plugged in or had a battery in stores and and the processes that went around that. So that meant scanners, credit card process, anything that we were doing in the stores was what I managed with my department. And I was on a trip to Chicago rolling out. There was Y2K. I don't know if you know that. Have you ever heard of Y2K? Like I'm old enough. I'm a girl. You are? Okay. <laughs> I mean, doomsday, right? Like computers are going to crash. The stock market's going to crash. Computers aren't going to work. So we were building up for that. And part of my team, uh, our responsibility was to travel the country and to roll out all these new laptops and gadgets and stuff. And so um, we were in Chicago. And one of the kind of winding down moments was to go out bowling. Unfortunately, um, I slipped and fell um, and suffered a traumatic brain injury along with a spine injury and my heels and just, I mean, a mess. So that took probably five or 10 days. Um, I think it was five or 10, I was in Chicago. Then they finally moved me back home to San Francisco. Um, And I didn't really experience um, probably the, typical symptoms except for maybe a major concussion and then on day 10 of returning home from what I understand in July of 2019 of 1999 um, I started having seizures Um, and then I fell down a set of stairs in our home Um, so things started getting complicated really quick and then they just 
unfortunately it just got worse. Um, so at first you didn't really think much of this. This was just a, you slipped, you fell. I mean, yeah, I was only out for, I mean, they, not even a minute probably they said like unconscious. Wow. Um, but then I think because it wasn't a, um, I can't remember the term now. Um, it was a closed head injury, so mm -hmm. I didn't have, it didn't split open and bleed, mm -hmm. but I had just small amounts of bleeding on my brain, um, the rear upsetable lobe. And so we just kind of thought like, oh, it's a you know, severe concussion. And I was embarrassed. All I remember about the accident is like embarrassment, like <gasps> I fell down. And I'm kind of known as being a jokester and the lighthearted guy. So a lot of the people tell us that they thought I was kidding when it happened. Wow. But then I was out and I wouldn't get up. Um, <laughs> like the joke's over, guys. Like Yeah. <laughs> and then people that came out to help us, they also got injured because they didn't realize there was all this oil that had spilled from the machine. So it had a it had a failure. Oh. And so as people came out to help me, they also started falling. Another lady had to have her kneecap replaced. Like oh it was my gosh. Yeah, it created quite a mess. Um, but anyway. Yeah, so you so know the moral and, of the story is don't go bowling. The moral of the story now is if you go to a Brunswick bowling alley and you see these big, crazy black and yellow lines that say, do not cross, because that's, that's because of me, which is, we think it was kind of their weird way of saying not our fault, because my fall happened in front of that line. I didn't, the oil was all spilled in front of it, not past that line. So it was kind of like, <laughs> but my employer was just glad that they helped pay for my recovery and stuff. Yeah, so. I'm kidding. Um, so now you're yeah, back so, at home and things get, got worse and yeah. when did things really kind of fall apart? Like when did you find yourself, I mean, you said you had to learn to, to speak, to walk, Read, like walk. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't able to verbalize and communicate. Um, and then also my eyes had been affected. So they, I started like my husband started noticing that I wasn't able to to read or to look at emails. Uh, and remember, this is dial up. We're talking AOL, right? And so <laughs> it's, um, but then, you know, and, and guests would come over and friends and people that work for me. And I, there started being days where I didn't recognize people mm -hmm. or I would just zone off. And I was doing a lot of rocking. Um, you know, I think probably just trying to, from what I, I don't remember these days, but probably just trying to cope with the stress and the pain. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, they started medicating me heavily by October of that year. So probably four to five months into it, just to try to get things to slow down and shut down. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, during that part, there was a time, you know, probably for a year that I, my brain was more of an adolescent um, or pre. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a lot of like coloring and computer games and um, friends would come and watch me and let so Jay could kind of go out and have a little bit of a life or right. travel mm -hmm. um, so it definitely became I feel like as I look back and I hear the stories it was probably most stressful for the caregiver right you know, yeah for my husband and you guys had been married for about 10 years at that point yeah right? yeah. yeah so a, st a solid relationship but still a, a massive strain on <laughs> can you imagine? a massive restraint yeah. I mean mm -hmm. that's not we do sign up for better or for worse but we never really can imagine what worse looks like yeah yeah, and I think that, you know, I remember, I and I do kind of remember when the fog started being lifted, I they had put me into a group trying to get me to do, um, use some coping mechanisms, and it was a head injury group in San Francisco, and most of the people in the group had had severe strokes, or were um, dock or iron workers, people that building big, tall size skyscrapers, because mm. they're the ones who really suffer bad head injuries from mm. uh, what we've learned. Um, so I was their only high tech guy. <laughs> 
you know, and I remember Jay said probably, so this is a year after the accident or a year and a half, two to three months into it. I said, you know, I'm, I would come home crying from the support group because I started having empathy for those people in the group. I started realizing I was better in a better position of healing than they were. And so that's when they said they kind of knew like, uh Oh, he's coming out of this. Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's hope. Um, And then, you know, you just kind of take on whatever you can. And I was really, you know, very fortunate that um, Jay had bonded with a caseworker um, for our healthcare, and she really pushed to enter me into all kinds of different programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they flew me to some other locations to do very unique treatment um, with scalp and head injections and um, pain management was the biggest piece because I would have headaches that lasted 16 to 18 hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't remember it, right? So that's that's <laughs> the really awesome thing. It's about, like childbirth. You're like, yeah, let's have another yeah. baby, whatever. Couldn't <laughs> yeah. have been that bad. I mean, I would be a millionaire if I had a baby though, but right. <laughs> <And> is that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, okay. So now you were living in a space, in a home. So what had to change for the two of you through the recovery? Like, did you have to make adaptations in the space to help you get up? And how did you, like, was it super sterile, super hospitally? Did you just live with it? Tell us about that. You know, it's that home that we rented in San Francisco. We started layering in lots more rugs because I spent a lot of time on the floor because Mm. of my back and my spine. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's, it is interesting though, because I think that um, probably then we it was more open. Um, I wouldn't say sterile. Definitely, I have always loved textures and layers um, and color, but it definitely was more open and mm-hmm. not as you know fewer obstacles. Yeah, I think that was probably the biggest piece for us. What Jay did was he um, they tore down our kind of breakfast nook and they put a computer set up in there and then I did a lot of um, because I had 20 some hours of in-home therapy a week and so they set up kind of a therapy area in the um, breakfast nook for me and then from what I understand um, I think I mean from what I understand everything else was kind of left alone Hmm. I think they did put uh, some kind of tread things on this internal staircase so I wouldn't slip Mm -hmm. but you know, it's, I think that, um, you know, Jay and I have always taken on remodel projects. That's just something we always did in our free time. And the occupational therapist knew that about us. And so, you know, one of the first projects that they wanted us to take on was to update a bathroom sink. Um, and this is, but you were in a rental house at the yeah. time? So we got permission from the landlord wow. for me. And so the state of California brought in a professional plumber who worked with people that are trying to do work rehab. He'd never worked with someone like me, uh, from what I understand. And so they, my occupational therapist, um, I can remember her, you know, I don't remember her name, but yeah, you know, I can just remember how like determined she was that we're going to get Garrison to do this because he's <laughs> determined to do it. Um, and I think that was, you know, probably some of the first adjustments. I think the biggest piece that I look back and because I have photos where I'm standing in front of this weird plywood painted box thing that's sitting over our range because they wouldn't let me use uh, any kind of devices for cooking. Right, for safety. So those were, I think, you know, those were some of the big pieces um, was just probably safety. Mm -hmm. Um, But we didn't put up grab bars or anything like that. Um, Well, and I think it's really interesting that you were in a rental space because, you know, people 
when they are thinking about like aging in place, they are adding a lot of structural components for safety, which if you're in a rental space, you may or may not feel like you have permission to do that. And so that, yeah. that ability to think, you know, I can just talk to my landlord. Maybe they will allow me to make some adaptations oh, to yeah. my space. Um, or maybe they won't, but you might as well ask, right? They always say, if you, if you don't ask, the answer is no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I've never been of the mind to, um, you know, ask for forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, already, I'd rather ask for permission. Now, also, a big change would have been that you were, I assume, always home. You know, sort of like when a husband goes and retires and yeah. the wife is like, huh, you're home a lot. You know, so how did you guys manage making sure that you had your own spaces? And, and you said that sometimes friends would come over so he could go travel. Yeah. How did you handle all that at home time, which we're all facing right now, of course? Yeah. So, again, we were kind of serial remodelers. In 2001, we purchased a home, a complete fixer that had been uh, vacant for 10 years, uh, wow. just a few blocks from our house in San Francisco. And so that kind of became the new project. Um, it's interesting. Wow. It's interesting that you mentioned, like, how did I create my own space? So I had actually, there was a lower area off the garage, which was kind of, I think they called it a, a rompus room or mm -hmm. have you heard that? Is it mm -hmm. yeah. rompus? Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a 50s term, doesn't it? I think it probably is. <laughs> yeah. And it had this beautiful, like, um, redwood siding, like, mm -hmm. grooved siding. I mean, it was really pretty internal. Um, so we did create a space there. That was, like, my space. In the other house, not in yeah. the rental. This is in the house. Right. That you yeah, because now we've moved on. I'm still in recovery. Because mm -hmm. um, So this would be a year and a half after my accident. And so that was really – I think, from what I understand, that was the first area we set up, the master mm -hmm. suite and that area and then all the other areas we had to replace all the plumbing the electrical while we lived there of course because why would you do it sensibly <laughs> um and you know i think that was really trying to you know create that defining area that was for me and you know it's kind of like because if you were to know me now and the way i live and talk to my employees i'm very orderly things are everything has a place and it must go in the place that's one thing i've learned mm -hmm. but during that phase i think from what i understand i think that I didn't probably have as much in-house in-home therapy or Jay looking over me because I had my own space. And so it mm -hmm. kind of started getting like cluttered. And um, so that was, I think there's always like this pull the curtain, go back there, you know. Sure. Because you were relearning habits, just like a child yes. would be relearning habits. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big focus of the job was, of my task of recovery, which I always considered my job, was to learn how to get things into short-term memory. That was mm. the big, big goal. Because um, mm. if it could ever get into short term, it would it would end up and get filed into long term. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's just trying to get through those. And I remember a big exercise that lasted for, from what I understand, Jay says, is over a year is placing plates out on the counter when I've eaten a meal and trying not to wash them or put them in the sink. So there were all these labels that were all over the kitchen countertop, like breakfast plate, lunch plate, like you know, so that I would try and make sure I knew, did I eat that day? Um, oh, and then yeah. just managing the pills. Yeah. Um, you know, we had bought, oh my God, I don't know, like, and friends were always buying us pill boxes, like that had timers on them or, cause you know, you're, you're just taking this enormous amount of medication right. um, for the seizures and for the pain medicine. So yeah. there's a, I think there was a lot of activities every day um, that, you know, you definitely would have known someone was um, going through something major 
if you came into the home. Right. And I wonder, does that give you some empathy and compassion for the kind of personalities when you're, you know, because you, you are now an interior designer and there are people who need their piles. They need the stuff out because if they don't see it, it doesn't exist. They can't manage right. it. Mm -hmm. So having kind of gone through a phase like that, does that give you some empathy for them that's maybe different than from beforehand? Yeah, I think if anything, it gives me a, it challenges me to want to help them. Mm. in a different way because um, you obviously and, moved from that phase to the now yeah, phase. yeah and i think that there's it's creating order uh is really important to me i have i can't shut my mouth <laughs> you know <laughs> if there's opportunity for improvement for someone like and i i'm not, I, i'm not totally crazy <laughs> but <laughs> like you, you wouldn't go in my garden shed right now and you wouldn't see like outlines of where the shovel goes or where the rake goes but it's close um yeah. I think that what I've learned and what I always empower others with is you need to establish what your pattern is and where things go. And then that's yours. No one else is allowed to touch it. And that's the thing that I think in compromising, especially when you're sharing a household, mm -hmm. whether it's a spouse or kids or whoever, is everyone needs to establish like, this is the way I like my order. And if everyone is in agreement, it's up to me, the person, the individual, to keep my order. Now, if other people are going to interject and throw more stuff on the pile or take things out, it doesn't work. Right. And that's usually one of the first rules that we set. Um, you know, when I think about organization and design is, okay, whose who's space is this? Mm. You know, if it's a pantry, like I have, we have amazing pantry photos on our portfolio. And a lot of it is because we create zones. You know, I don't believe in the, you know, the triangular um, work zones that mm -hmm. were created in the 50s um, for the kitchen and um, area. There was no microwave. There really wasn't a dishwasher. Uh, there wasn't, you know, like children were prepared meals when they got out of school. So things were very different. And so now we create zones, right? So there's the cleaning zone, there's the prep zone, there's a the cooking, there's a snack zone. That's one of our yeah. favorite things to do. <laughs> um, that makes sense. Yeah. Right? And so like who, who manages the snacks? right? Do you go buy the snacks? Do they come from Amazon and then the kids unload them? So again, it's responsibility. Who is going to manage that area? And then I think it like, it all starts falling into place, even if it's a pile, which, you know, I have issues. I don't like piles out in the open um, <laughs> and I don't have piles behind doors, <laughs> but I know others do, right? So back, sure. you, yeah. it, they do. I get it. I, don't, I mean, I don't really get it that much, but. <laughs> <laughs> but you're trying to create a system that accommodates and adapts to the reality of their habits, their system, their orders. Because even people with piles would say, I know where things are at. Oh, right. I have a system. Yeah. Just it's not clear to you mm -hmm. when you're looking at right. it. Right. Yeah. Well, that's like even in designing our beach house, you know, the first thing I did is I, uh, it was a remodel of a 1940s home, a single ranch, single story ranch home. And I took out all the upper cabinets um, and I put in these really large industrial kitchen heavy duty stainless steel because the big thing I, I didn't want people that if you get invited to come to the house because we don't really host a lot of people there or we don't rent it out mm -hmm. I, I don't want to like care for you you know so a lot of this and what we talk about organization for people is um, you know if you have open shelving and you have everything in order it's really easy if you want to help do the dishes or put the dishes out of the dishwasher. Like, because people want to hunt through the doors to figure out what goes where. Yeah, and I kind of my whole walkthrough and spiel is even when you come to my home is okay. So I'm going to show you where it is the first time, and then you're going to do it from here out. Nice, I love it. Now, do you feel like your accident because you weren't an interior designer, 
you've had the accident, you are now an interior designer. So is your current career related to the accident? How did, how did this come to be? And do you feel like your accident has influenced how you design or who you work for, how you approach it? Like what's the connection there? I definitely have always made the joke that it sometimes takes a knock on the head to figure out what you're supposed to do in life. (laughs) Right. Um, And I, I'm very process oriented. I'm, I've always been an operational person. Um, I ran millions of dollars of budget when I worked for the Gap and Old Navy, um, mostly based on processes and um, operations and systems. And so that's still in me. That mm-hmm. part is there. And I love a system and I love a process. And I know this is crazy. I feel like I thrive in supporting the best culture and environment for my employees. I feel like they're the ones who need more structure um, to do their best job. Mm-hmm. So I may not be the best creative. Um, I'm very practical. I'm sensible. Um, that doesn't always appeal to everyone as a client mm-hmm. because I will always put uh, livability, practicality before just doing something because it's design. It's just, it's just who I Which am. Which is, and- I will say, one of the reasons why I love you. Oh, really? Because I mean, you're that speaking my language. So yeah. Yeah. But you're right, you know, there, you have an entire team and you have a lot of different kinds of clients. So you meet the client where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Why that, does it sound crazy to you that you are like, I'm just helping other designers do their best work. Why was that crazy exactly? Well, we know that the unicorns need structure. And I love the way they stand around and braid their hair and put color. <laughs> and sometimes there's skittle rainbow farts. But, you know, it's... Um, I love building structure and sometimes that means a fence or a corral and a process E and I that's that's where I love. So your I, real job is wrangling unicorns. It's not interior design. Yeah, I love unicorns. Um, <laughs> and I love to challenge. I think the, you know, so here's how here's our whole formula what makes this work is that the the designer whoever gets assigned to a project, I'm their client. They're not allowed to imagine impressing the client with design or trying to sell the client that's my job so they have Mm. to sell me so that every design has my spin on it and my eye because that's really who they're hiring right your name Um, is on the company yeah and so i think that that's that's how we keep this in check um and so that is it it does put a lot of confinement on some design members and it's not doesn't work for everyone um and I think that what I bring to the table is practicality. So I'm very fortunate. I grew up in a home that my mother loved to entertain. That was her spiel. That was her thing. Um, we came along, we were adopted later in their lives, my parents' lives and my brother and I, and her whole thing, she had been raising and really giving life to her nieces and nephews. Um, they spent weekends at her house. They would travel with her and my dad. And so those were like all these like much older cousins were always around. And so that was kind of one of the things that I learned. And I'm not sure that my employees have that piece of hospitality. Um, you know, the, one of my very first projects was this huge, crazy remodel. Um, I was working at part-time at a furniture store and these clients came in and, um, they had bought a home because they loved the restaurants in Portland, you know, like, Oh my gosh, (laughs) how does that work? And, you know, it was, and it was $800,000 home and they spent 1.4 million remodeling it. And then 
over $400,000 in furnishings. And it's mm -hmm. like, I didn't know what I was doing really uh, <laughs> as far as like the bookkeeping and all that. But what I did know is that, you know, the younger designer who was the assistant, you know, was just throwing the utensils in the drawer. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like there had to be liners and we had to put organizers. And I think that, you know, really putting some practicality into design is something that it's not only in aesthetics, but it's also really talking about seasonal things. Like are, if you're a host and you have large platters and you have large baking, chafing dishes and all that, those don't go in your main kitchen, right? Like mm -hmm. let's not occupy all that space. Let's put mm -hmm. it somewhere else. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times in design, you know, I really try to think about the floor plans and the value that I bring is that I look at it as a real estate. So there's always, you know, when you look at a neighborhood, there's always the high value pieces of property and the, the really special jewels. Mm -hmm. And then maybe there's something that's over by the tracks or maybe up by the stoplight or the bus stop, not quite as great value. Same thing for a home. Like, I think that I look as like the high dollar priority areas of a home, like a kitchen or a dining room, those spaces. Let's not overbuild them if we don't have to. Mm -hmm. Let's make them practical. And let's find other areas where we can kind of, you know, condition spaces and provide organization. So yeah. I think and that influence on my designers is something that is unexpected. Yeah. The client doesn't realize they're going to get. Well, I love that it's coming from what you experienced as a child growing up. So do you feel like, you know, they, they entertain so much. That was a hospitality home. Um, it sounds like that's really influenced how you approach home in general. Are there rules that over time you thought were true that aren't true that you've actually jettisoned over time? Ooh. Um, well, dryer sheets, right? Don't use them. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've learned I mean, over time, dryer sheets are not good for the environment or us. That's, that is right? true. They do. They okay. smell awfully nice. <laughs> they do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, that's, I love oh, that's that answer. A, um, yeah, and something, it might be something to change the yeah. question a little bit where you see clients who think, oh, well, we have to follow this rule. And then you're like, no, no, we don't. Yeah. Well, I definitely think the dishwasher still goes to the right or the left of the sink. You know, that is <laughs> it's a good rule of, to follow. Yeah, it's a good rule. I wouldn't change it. <laughs> I'm very opinionated, believe it or not. Even though I'm really nice and congenial, if I see something I don't agree with, I'll just say it. But it sounds like it's more in the moment because you're not you're not somebody who sounds like you're guided by these are rules for everybody all the time. It's more of a what are the rules for this family in this moment yeah. right now? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, I mean, I will say one trend, maybe, maybe not from my childhood, but one trend that I'm really trying to negotiate in my own head is putting the plug strips up underneath the cabinets. Because when you really struggle and you think about someone who is truly using appliances and they've got their, their burr grinder and all their other appliances, the few that they leave out every day, do you really want to have to reach up under and plug something in? Is that sensible just because it's aesthetic? Please not my aesthetic. favorite thing. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I believe in that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there is, you know, so some, some of the times on the podcast I'm talking to normal people who just yeah. have homes and I'm, sometimes I'm talking to designers and I think it's interesting for designers to walk that line between aesthetics and truly practical functional form. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's a big part of our job, but you've got to weigh the pros and cons and figure out where the client's coming from too. And you know, their luxury level and their expectations and everything like that. So let's talk about your home now. Would you call your home your happy place? Oh yeah. Yeah. Why? What is it in your home that makes you so happy? It's mine. <laughs> <laughs> I love that it's me. It's my way. And we've not 
you know, we've, I don't know if it's purposely, but I've never, I haven't published this home. Um, and it's, I am slightly afraid that my clients will look at it and go like, whoa, that's your style. Cause it's, it's very vibrant and I love stimulation. And, and Jay is like my best and worst client ever. Like he's, <laughs> he's slow to agree, but then he like, he just embraces it and he loves it. Yeah. And the mix of color and pattern in my living room. And that's my, it is my happy place to be able to, we do the French press and then we walk in, he reads all this foreign language called sports that I don't understand. <laughs> and then he'll quote to me like, Oh, the offensive, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't know. But you know, so we read our phones, we read the news in the morning and you just kind of like see the space light up and then well, now I walk 20 feet to work, but um, <laughs> where I would leave and go to my building. Um, but yeah, I think it is. I think it's, and it's, it's those artifacts and the hunt and the gather and the stories behind all those things. Um, like everything in my living room, I think everything is a, there's a story behind it, either a gift or a treasure that we found. Yeah. So. It's interesting to me. So you say your living room is very, very vibrant. Yeah. And um, that you, your clients might be like, that's not for me. I'm curious why. Well, they want to peg us. <laughs> but you could, of course, be designing. That could be your thing, right? You could be like, I'm the person who does all the crazy color. So you've not chosen to make that your brand, if you will, as an interior mm -hmm. designer. Yeah, I, I have purposely not been defined for a style because I, I have that. so many loves. Well, I, I just, I think, um, you know, I, especially when you run such a large company, um, you know, it's, it's 30 plus employees and mm -hmm. they all have their own little taste too. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I think that I, I love, I have such a huge love for traditional homes and all the moldings and the accoutrements that go into that. I, I don't want to live like that. Like mm -hmm. we've already remodeled, you know, I've already done that in San Francisco. Yeah. We then went on to remodel several hundred year old plus homes. I don't want that anymore. So I, I'm not saying that's not my style, but it's not right now today. Sure. Um, but I think I want to be able to help create an interpretation of what someone else's life is. That's what I really want. Um, you like the story behind it. Oh, I love that. I love to pull out like what inspires them and not just Pinterest, right? A trip, <laughs> um, a trip or a story or someone else's house. I'm okay if it's someone else's house. Um, but, you know, I think that it's, that is the piece of creating someone's home that doesn't feel like they just went out to a, you know, furniture gallery and bought a room. Yeah. Right. Have you ever had a big design failure that you're willing to share with our listeners? I, I've, I had in the first year, one, a really big fail. Um, I did not comprehend how to measure a L-shaped sectional. I just, it, I made a mistake. I had done components, widths, let's see, how do I explain this? Um, <laughs> the, somehow I shortened it by one seat, so 39 inches. I remember how much. That's a lot of inches. Yeah, that's a butt, right? <laughs> um, so then the fabric got ordered wrong and it got applied wrong and it got, and it was this beautiful nubby Italian corduroy. Oh gosh, what was I thinking? Um, so yeah, that's probably one of our, my largest mistakes. Yeah. Um, so if somebody were not a designer and they were having to measure for their own sofa, oh, what man. advice would you give them? 
people try and learn what right facing and left facing arm means <laughs> right and so that's kind of like when people talk about the front tires on a car is it the right or the left you know it's just and well, it's, is that from when you're sitting inside of the car or when you're right, looking at the yeah. car yeah so for uh i you know you have oh man um i think that right arm left arm facing that will tell you everything if you learn those terms what that means um, then I think that it's really doing an outside measurement when the sectionals join together. That's what you have to do. And I, I screwed that up. I didn't think about that. Um, we all start, we all start somewhere. Wow. It was not a great place <laughs> to start. Um, and you know what I would tell you that if anyone is from a design perspective as a professional is the onus is on us as a professional, we have to create the fix, whatever goes on behind the scene. If you think it's a vendor problem or you think it's an, whatever whoever's fault it is mm -hmm. doesn't matter for us Fix it's like it. i want to get to the fix that's and my staff knows that the client yeah. and their expectations have to be met i love that so what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to create their own happy home okay so this is something i i feel like i challenge the most friends and other acquaintances is quit worrying about what a seating area looks like as you approach it. Think about the seating area once you're in it. Hmm. So if the, if you don't need to create balance in a room, if you can't reach the coffee table, if it's there really to sit your drinks on, like that doesn't make sense to me. And that's something that kind of took over time because I found in my last home trying to convince my husband of that. Like, he's like, it looks a little crowded in here. I'm like, well, walk in and sit down. Okay, mm. now reach. And we have this huge, crazy sectional in front of the screen and stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah, it does. Um, so <laughs> I would tell people that don't always think about, especially a gathering space or where you're going to hang out, what does it feel like when you're in the space? Yeah. And do you have all of the things within reach you want? Not just does it look visually pleasing? Well, and I think that's really important for people to hear because you know, we, we spend time on Instagram, we spend time on Pinterest, we see these beautiful, or in shelter magazines, we see these beautiful rooms, and people may not realize that those pictures are a lie, just like fashion photography is a lie, right? So what is done to create a beautiful photograph is very different from what is done to create a beautiful experience of living in a yeah. space. And it's important that we separate those out in our head. What we're trying to say in a photograph is different from what we want to live with in our real lives. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the big key, you know, that I try to teach a lot of people, even clients, is that when the camera goes in the room, the room moves to the camera. Mm -hmm. They Once the camera is set and it's architecturally, you know, contemplating where the walls and ceiling and floor are, that camera, that lens stays. And we start moving the room, all the furniture in the room to fit into the camera angle. Mm -hmm. There's no way we live like that. No, I mean, you'll see pictures where there's a chair right in front of a door that theoretically you need to open yeah, and go through. Right? Yeah. You know, so it, yeah, if anybody's listening, it's a very fun exercise to flip through a shelter magazine and then look at all the things that are impossible. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I, I think that as long as you have a little bit of knee space from your sofa to the coffee table, or if you need to put a little tiny, um, do you know Charleston Forge? 
Do you know mm -hmm. that company? Oh, I love that they're made. I'm a made America guy. I love made America. Um, Charleston Forge is out of uh, North Carolina and they do, it's all forged steel and then they have a local um, place that supplies wood. And so they mm -hmm. do these little tiny crazy sofa tables and it's like maybe eight inches wide. Yeah. What I love about those is in a tight space where you have a sectional, you just put it behind you yeah. and then like dad or someone, you know, could reach back and put the glass, his beer glass yeah. behind him. Which is especially nice if there's a bunch of dogs, cats, and small children running around because <laughs> right. the coffee yes. table is always a little bit dangerous anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's like trying to like think of those, like be practical. Um, yeah. That's what I would tell someone who's like trying to make a happy space. I love it. So uh, go ahead and share where folks can find you if they want to connect with you. Well, thank you. How fun. Uh, I would say go to Instagram. That's probably the easiest way to see like what's really going on. And it's uh, G-H-I-D-I-N-C. So Garrison Hollinger Interior Design, Inc. So G-H-I-D, Inc. Or you can check out our website at G-H-I-D.design. Perfect. And of course, that'll be in the show notes as well. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story and um, your good advice with our listeners. Aww. I really appreciate having you here today. Thanks for having me. What a fun conversation. And to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Creating Your Happy Place and that you do feel a little bit more encouraged and empowered to make your home your happy place, no matter what life throws at you or what bumps on the head you get. If you do feel stuck, please, I encourage you to check out my book, Happy Starts at Home. It's, it's filled with exercises that are really meant to help you figure out what isn't working with your home and what could change so that it does actually make you happy. And if you have a specific design dilemma, don't hesitate to reach out to my team at Seriously Happy Homes because thanks to the magic of the internet and Zoom, we can help you figure out some practical steps to making your home your happy place no matter where you live. And in the meantime, no matter where you call home, I hope it makes you seriously happy. Until next time.